Isaiah 40, 26 exhorts us to lift up our eyes on high and consider who made the stars. The creator of the innumerable celestial host is the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah tells us that the Lord numbers all the stars and calls each one by name. If the Lord of the universe knows the name and the number of the stars, be encouraged. He too knows where you are. This is Good Heavens, a podcast about the human side of the universe and how a deeper appreciation for the heavens can encourage and strengthen your faith in Christ. Wayne and Dan have been discussing issues concerning the cosmos, creation, and Christ since 2017. Everything from strange stars, weird moons, to oddball galaxies, and how it all points to the glory of God. I heard a homily talking about Judas, and his theory was Judas was a revolutionary. Judas wanted Jesus to do these things to start the revolution. And the theory is maybe Judas betrayed Jesus to force him to do those things to start the revolution. And that's the ultimate crime, is to not accept who Jesus was, but to try to manipulate him. And that's the crime of a scientist, to rather, rather than letting the data speak to you, trying to manipulate the data to fit the theory you already had. Written in 1907, Martha Evans Martin and Donald Howard Menzel's book, The Friendly Stars, How to Locate and Identify Them, is a wonderful down-to-earth guide if you are at all interested in becoming more personally acquainted with a beauteous array of stars above your backyard. It isn't just a dry astronomy book, but a work that brings a much more domestic and homey atmosphere to the art of stargazing. Consider what they say of the stars in the Big Dipper, for example. Quote, Dube and Merak seem fair and smiling as they graciously point the way to the North Star. Mizar suggests friendliness, Alcor, faithfulness, end quote. They go on to mention the sturdiness of Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus, the delicate charm of the Pleiades cluster, the serenity of the lone star of the southern horizon, Falmelhout, and the gentleness and kindness and affection of Castor and Pollux in the constellation of Gemini. But wait, you might be saying, that's all stuff for a child's book. That's not astronomy. Aren't you dabbling in astrology when you personify stars like that? Besides, this says nothing of the elements of which they're made, their size, their shape. What does any of this have to do with science? Remember, the stars are the verbal creation of the Logos of the cosmos. He spoke them into existence. They bear the imprint of his glory, his invisible attributes. They are the messengers who speak to us in a silent, tacit speech that we interpret into words and expressions which enable us to have conversations with one another about God's creation. The heavens are finally personal. They are poetic. And poetry is indeed a legitimate way in which astronomers may carry forth their love knowledge and appreciation of the wonders of the universe. 
The 19th century poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, for example, calls the stars fire folk. Look at the stars. Look, look up at the skies. Oh, look at all the fire folk sitting in the air. In another poem, Hopkins declares, quote, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil, end quote. And we find in the scriptures that God likens us to the fire folk of the heavens. We too are like the stars that shine. Take note of the poetic allusions to God's children as stars. In Genesis 15:5, Daniel 12:3. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, and Philippians 2, 15. The cosmos is a conversation about the glory of God, and we should enter the conversation, as well as the church, the observatory, the office, our own backyard, with reverent humility, and as the scriptures exhort, expect the unexpected. A patient cultivation of looking, listening, learning. And such has been the path of our next guest on Good Heavens, astrophysicist, astronomer, gifted communicator of science and faith, as well as a Jesuit priest and the chief astronomer of the Vatican Observatory, Brother Guy Consolmagno. So we invite you into a fascinating conversation about the history of how we've come to know the stars, the differences between meteoroids, meteors and meteorites, why the Vatican has observatories and Jesuit astronomers and what they do. We talk about Galileo, poetry, humility, the necessity of careful observation, and part of the joy of living a life of faith in Christ, delighting in what he has created for his glory and for us to enjoy. As the psalmist proclaims, quote, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them, splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Brother Guy Consolmagno. It's great to be here, and uh, I'm glad you say at least chief. I have to remember that there are a dozen of us from all over the world, (laughs) half of them in Rome, half of them in Tucson, and we're kind of both hunkered down at this point. That's fascinating. Yes, we are in the midst of of a very unique global situation known as the coronavirus um, and uh, hunkered down and but that's given us opportunity uh, to chat because normally you're very difficult to get a hold of well by design (laughs) by design exactly you're super busy with all the things that you do Um, just briefly for our audience I I still talk to people I know you're in our book that came out in uh, last July um, the compendium of the cosmos the story of the cosmos and I tell people yeah we have essays, a broad-ranging survey of essays, even from uh, the Vatican astronomer. And people look at me like, the Vatican astronomer? I, well, of course. <laughs> I didn't know that there was such a thing. So I'm still still getting that from people. So explain a little bit about what you do, what the church does, what why the Vatican has an astronomy program at all. Just kind of go into that. I think that's fascinating. Well, there's a short answer and a long answer, and I'll give you a little both. Okay. Um, for one... Astronomy is a topic that has been in the universities since the Middle Ages. And the universities, of course, were set up by the church. 
Mm-hmm. The astronomy then, and to some extent today, is really cosmology. How is the universe put together? Yeah. But there's a couple of deep theological assumptions behind it. The first is that the physical universe is worth knowing about. And there are a lot of religions that don't believe that. You know, if you mm. think that everything is illusion, then you're not going to be bothering to study the physical universe. Right. If you think the universe is evil, you're not going to want to get studying, or at least you're going to have a hard time getting money to study it, because <laughs> exactly. why study evil? Yes. On the other hand, if you think that everything in the universe is controlled by nature gods, so you've got the, the god of crops and the god of lightning, mm. then there's nothing to study, you know? Mm-hmm. Things happen because the gods make it happen. Mm. Christianity, the, the, basically the faiths of the book, so it's Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, Mm. all except the creation story. Mm. And the creation story, it's important to remember, the creation story we see in Genesis is not a science book because science hadn't been written yet. Right. And it's not unique to Genesis. If you look at Genesis 1 and you find that in the beginning was, the, you know, <clears throat> in the beginning God said, mm-hmm. uh, God is already there in the beginning. Yes. And then you see outlined a very systematic way that the universe is made. But the universe that they're talking about is the universe that was known to the Babylonians. Mm. And you find a lot of parallels in these stories to the old Babylonian myths. Mm. In fact, the Babylonians had an idea that the universe was made out of chaos and the gods fighting each other. And one of the gods killed a dragon and the dragon's name was Tiamat. Well, that's the word that's used for chaos in the Genesis story. Wow. So what's important in the Genesis story is not how they think the world was put together, because the Babylonians thought they'd figured that out. It was the best science of the day. Mm. What's important is what's different. All the things where Genesis is different from the prevailing ideas. First of all, in that there's only one God, not a bunch of gods. Second, that that God is already there in the beginning before there's a universe. Mm. Our God is a supernatural God. And it was uh, Rabbi Sachs, who was once the chief rabbi in England, who wrote a marvelous book pointing out how fundamentally important this is, that the God of Abraham is a God who is not in the universe, but supernatural, something that none of the other religions had. Right, right. He's not a part of his cosmos. Right. Wholly separate and transcendent from the cosmos. And it's only if you're transcendent, only if you're outside the cosmos, that you can bring meaning to the cosmos. Amen. Amen. Because, you know, a chair has no meaning unless there's somebody sitting in the chair that's not chair. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, Right. So the best part, though, you see this beautiful logic that the universe can be understood, Mm -hmm. that there is a logic to it, that there is a development. But the biggest and most important difference for the Babylonian story was that the Babylonians said, ah, the greatest part of creation was the city of Babylon. No surprise there. Right. What is the climax? What is the end point? What is everything in the Genesis story pointing to in creation? It's not the creation of human beings. That's only the sixth day. Yeah. It's the Sabbath. Right. God rested it's the and said, seventh day. All that he made was very good. When he, and, from that, from that, and, of course, yes. And that is the time when we are encouraged, told, instructed. The whole point of our creation is so that we can look back 
and not worry about what are we going to eat, not worry about how are we going to clothe ourselves. Those are always good things. You know, you need those. Right. But we wouldn't be humans. We wouldn't be in the image and likeness of God if we didn't spend the time to look back and admire and love and appreciate the creator who's made himself known since the beginning in the things he made, to quote St. Paul. Mm. In other words, we were created to be astronomers. That's right. Brother Guy, I, I absolutely was thinking, I was on my walk yesterday and I was like, okay, Lord, what can I, what can I talk about with Brother Guy? Because this podcast is amazing. I just a brief aside here, you know, th- almost three years ago, it was my friend Wayne and I sitting in our friend's living room having pie and hamburgers and we were just chatting and Wayne and I would just chat back and forth about astronomy and cosmology and Jesus. And our friends are like, you guys need to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and Wayne and I are like, what? <laughs> and they gave us a gift of a microphone uh, that Christmas, and that was in 2017. And here I am now talking to the yeah. the Vatican astronomer. So it's, it's it's fantastic. I love what you just said. It's fantastic, and it reminded me. So yesterday on my walk, I'm thinking, what can I do? And immediately, immediately, God brought the picture of a face of Gerard Manley Hopkins to mind. Mm-hmm. And I pulled my uh, Hopkins poetry off the shelf, and I turned to a couple of poems of his that I love. God's <sighs> grandeur. Yes, of course. The world is charged with the, grand- with the grandeur of God. God. It will oh, one of my favorite like poems. Shining, like shining from shook foil, it gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil. And then right below that in the collection that I have is uh, star, the Starlight Night, which begins, look at the stars, look, look up at the skies. Oh, look at all the fire folk sitting in the air, the bright boughs, the circle citadels there. And uh, I think what Hopkins is doing in the Starlight poem is, is reminding us of just the very thing that you said, the contemplation of the cosmos leads us to contemplating God's grandeur and all that he has done. Uh, I used to uh, freak out my fellow graduate students 40 years ago because I would start reciting Hopkins poetry from memory. Awesome. Of course, he was a good Jesuit. So, you know, yes, yes, of, of course. I, I figured you would like myself. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'll tell you another interesting uh, background to Hopkins. Absolutely. If you know astronomy, you're probably familiar with David Levy, who was one of the mm-hmm. guys who discovered Comet Shoemaker-Levy Shoemaker 9 Levy. Yeah. and a number of other comets. Uh, he's a good buddy. He lives here in Tucson. Very devoutly Jewish. Oh, wow. And his degree is actually in English literature, not in astronomy. And he wrote his master's thesis on the poetry of Jared Manley Hopkins. I'll be darned. That's phenomenal. That's really cool. Well, I've answered half your story. Why is the Vatican interested in astronomy? But how is it that we actually have a national observatory at the Vatican city-state? There you go. Part of that is to remind you that the Vatican is its own city-state. It's its own country, world's smallest country, but it is a country. Right. Uh, We've got our own passports, our own currency, and our own postage stamps. And that occurred in about 1870. Hmm. At the time, there was a marvelous Jesuit who had just basically invented stellar spectroscopy at the Roman College, a fellow named Angelo Secchi. Okay. And he was one of the most famous scientists in the world. When there was a big meeting in 1872 in Paris on reforming the metric system, every nation was supposed to send a representative. Mm. And so the Vatican City State, uh, which had just been formed, still called themselves the Holy See then, mm-hmm. sent, uh, sent Secchi. 
And the Italians who refused to recognize the city-state in those days objected, he's not from a real country. And everybody looked around and they said, yeah, but he's a better scientist than you. It's either him or, you know. <laughs> right. And the Italians left and they, they kept Secchi. Having a national observatory was a way for the Vatican city-state, as it finally was named in the 1930s, mm. as a way of it to be recognized as an independent nation. Mm. The other thing that was going on at the end of the 19th century, and that was the beginning of the myth that somehow science and religion were opposed. Yes, yes. Which is, of course, crazy, because as I said, the science started in the religious universities. Absolutely. Even at the time of Galileo, nobody thought that this was a science-religion issue. It was a lot of politics, a lot of which whose science is right. Oh, yes. You know, don't get me started in Galileo unless you want another hour. <laughs> but, well, I, uh, every, I was going to touch on that a little bit, but we don't have to go into it in yeah. great detail. <laughs> Everything you know about Galileo is wrong, and is the wrong. truth doesn't make the church any better. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Mistakes they made weren't the mistakes you think they made. They were different mistakes. Yeah. But anyway, um, having the church, having the Vatican actually supporting an, an institution that does nothing but science, the Vatican Observatory, was a way of countering this myth. And of course, Angelo Secchi, the priest, was a great example of a great scientist who did a lot of fundamental science. Mm. Um, Georges Lemaitre, the guy who came yes. up with the Big Bang, was a right. Catholic priest. Right. Uh, remember the fellow who worked out gene genetics, uh, Gregor Mendel, Gregor obviously Mendel. another priest. Yes. More than that, here's a great thing. It, at the Vatican Observatory in Rome, we've got a nice library, which includes a bunch of books that the Vatican Library dumped on us in the 1930s to make room. They basically said anything that was modern and dealing with science, the Vatican Observatory could house. By modern, they meant printed with a printing press. Oh. So we've got a complete run of the philosophical transactions of the Royal Society of London, going wow. back to 1665, just sitting on the shelves. Wow. And similar books from the, the national institutions in Paris and in Germany. And you go through and you see who was doing science in the 18th century. Mm. You know, they didn't have government programs to pay for a scientist. That right. So... It was wealthy noblemen. Yeah. They had the education and the money. Medical doctors, they were getting paid for it. They had the education. Mm -hmm. And clergymen. Right. The clergy had the education and they had the free time. They also had the training that it takes to be a scientist. Day to day, what does a scientist do? I mean, the, the, the most oft-used tool that any scientist I know is nowadays an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> it's collecting data, it's sorting data, it's right. putting data and filing it and, and trying to figure out what's going on with the data. Yes. What do we call the work of sorting and filing? It used to be little three by five cards. You'd have the, the data written right. out. The card thing. catalog. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that's called clerical work, you know, because uh -huh. it was done by clerics. Clerics. There you go. The work that you need to be able to do to run a parish to keep track of who was born and who died and who's you know, first cousins and maybe they shouldn't get married. <laughs> That's the same kind of work that goes into the day-to-day -day work of being a scientist. Absolutely. Science was being done by church people all along. And it was only um, the rise in the end of the 19th century of scientism, the people who wanted to turn science into a religion. Mm. that they started this myth that somehow they were opposed to each other. Well, I was, I've been reading a delightful book, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with it, uh, by Alan Chapman called Stargazers, Copernicus, Galileo, the Telescope. 
and mm-hmm. the church. And I was doing a little bit of uh, follow-up reading on it to prepare for our chat. But he does an excellent job of outlining the culture. Uh, right now, I'm actually in the chapter about Galileo, about the, the culture of, you know, Kepler and Bra and Galileo and Copernicus, the, the era of the pat- patron and the, you know, Maffeo Barberini, who was who became Pope Urban, who was Galileo's uh, patron before all the stuff unfolded. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, just the emphasis on what we would call, what, what, what we call today scientists, but they were natural philosophers uh, pr- prior to, I think, Robert Boyle, the, the 1700s, when you have the Royal Society come about, uh, this idea of the scientist as we understand it, was is really kind of a novel idea that you're basically saying knowledgeist. And yeah. it's, it, it used to be, uh, in, in the era that you're describing, it used to be a very um, interdisciplinary approach to studying creation. It wasn't just, hey, let's look at our instrumentation. It was more mathematics, beauty, art, music, the whole kit and caboodle, right? Well, they were Renaissance men, you know, yes. literally and figuratively. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now you have the delightful pleasure of being in charge of all the Vatican's astronomical research. So what is the, what is, tell us about the, what you do and what your team does on a, on a daily basis now. What do you guys keep track of? What's your, uh, before all this coronavirus stuff, what, what, what do you guys do normally? What's, what's in a day in the life of? Fascinatingly, our life hasn't changed all that much, even with the virus. Um, there was a lockdown in Italy, for instance, so that you can't go to work. But right. our commute is to walk from upstairs to downstairs. <laughs> we have a building in the Papal Gardens, uh, walking distance to the telescopes that were there, which we can't use anymore because of light pollution. Uh. But uh, upstairs is where everybody lives. Downstairs is where all the offices are. Hmm. We've got a dozen astronomers from four continents, uh, you know, eight languages spoken, and that's just Paul Gabor, who's from uh, the Czech Republic. Hmm. Um, Everybody comes to us. They're all basically clerics, and most of them Jesuits. Everyone comes to us with a PhD from some major university. So Hmm. uh, we've got people with degrees from Oxford, from MIT, from Padua, from... um, Max Planck Institute. Mm. And during your degree, you probably started doing a research project. So you came both with your own hot topic that you're really interested in and a community of people out in the astronomical world who are your friends and your collaborators and sometimes your enemies. (laughs) And this means that everybody is working on his own project. Mm. Uh, it's, of course, I had to stop and think his, because this is one of the few institutions where we're all men, unfortunately. Right. Uh, you know, the, it's, the, the Vatican Observatory was given to the Jesuit order, which is an order of men, so that uh-huh. we could all live together in one community under one rule. Got and it. to make sure that we're more broad than just a bunch of guys, mm-hmm. we have adjunct scholars who are at universities around the world. These include lay people, uh, men and women still all Catholic because they're all affiliated with the Vatican. Yes. But the range of research that any particular person does can be from cosmic dust. We've got a guy who's got uh, cameras set up to see dust coming into the atmosphere, and he's been able to work out from the brightness and the speed of the dust, the brightness and the speed of the meteor, where it comes from, what it's made out of, and 
it turns out meteors have distinct populations and they come from distinct different parts of the solar system. We didn't know this. Yeah, that's your specialty, isn't it? Meteorites. Well, mine is actually meteorites, which are bigger. They're rocks. He's talking about the dust. Okay. I'm doing the the rocks, right? Yes. Yeah. The difference, let me make a distinction for the, make the distinction for the audience, if you will, because it always trips me up as well. What are the difference between meteorites and meteors? Well, there's a meteorite, a meteoroid, and a meteor. A meteoroid is something in space that's about to hit planet Earth. Got it. When it's going through the atmosphere, it makes a flash of light, and that's a meteor. All right. If any survives the passage through the atmosphere, because it gets really hot and most of it burns off, Mm. but if anything survives to hit the ground and you can pick it up, that's a meteorite. Got it. And if you found some weird rock and you say, oh, I'll bet you this is from outer space and worth a million dollars and come and show it to me, I'll probably look at it and say, no, that's not a meteorite. That's a meteor wrong. (laughs) Because there are a lot of weird rocks out there, but most of them didn't fall through space. Uh, I know in your chapter in our book, you have briefly described some, you've been to trips to Antarctica. Is that correct? That's right. And uh, Um, I just did a... I just did a, a podcast with Michael Ward, who's in our book. Who, and Michael is the one who I attribute to being able to introduce us mm-hmm. together and to be, have you be a part of our project. But Michael and I were just talking about G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare. And Michael believes that that is sort of Chesterton's musings over the, uh, the, the Copernican view of the world. Now, what's, what's right side up? Are we mm-hmm. upside down or right side up? And so when you're on Antarctica, are you hanging from the bottom of the earth? <laughs> I thought I it was know. delightful. Um, yeah, so down still felt like down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I'm sorry I sidetracked you here with the question mm-hmm. about meteors. Uh, but uh, so you're talking about the, 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 the quality and the, the kind and the variety of research among the brethren and associates. Right. right. Well, from there, you can go out to spectroscopy and people who are measuring the spectra of stars, spectra of the, the rainbow, but the intensity of the colors tells you what elements are present and what temperature they're at. And you can suddenly learn what a star is. There's a great sidelight. There was a, a, a French philosopher in the 1830s, Auguste Comte, mm, yes. who wrote that there is a, a kind of knowledge that we know exists, but we will never know. For instance, it's impossible that we would ever know what a star is made out of because we can't go to a star and pick it up. And then within 10 years, Angelo Secchi was taking the spectra of stars and figuring out what they were made of. Right. And uh, I have a quote along those lines from uh, Cecilia Payne. Uh, This was from 1926. And she's talking about the elements that we now know exist in stars. And she says this. She says, perhaps the universal occurrence of the elements found on the Earth and this is in 1926, so we know much more now, but uh, perhaps the universal occurrence of the elements found on the earth is the principal feature of reality in the picture. But in addition, there is overwhelming evidence in the night sky that these elements are built according to some definite plan into the stars. And the woman who figured out how they were built was a woman named Margaret Burbage. Mm. And she and her husband, uh, and a couple of other scientists, Burbage, Burbage, Fowl, and Fowler, and, and I'm blanking on the last one, mm. um, worked out the science along with a few other people, including a guy I used to work with, Al Cameron, oh, wow. of how the elements are actually made in stars. Mm. And Margaret Burbage comes to mind because she died a couple of weeks ago at the age of 100. Yes, phenomenal. 100 years old, studying the stars. Mm. When did she do her principal uh, 
work in that was that was in the in the fifties is when okay. that the famous uh, B squared paper came out. Okay, and at about that time, uh, there was another couple of scientists, a fellow named George Gamow. Gamma was kind of the Carl Sagan of his generation or the, mm. the Neil deGrasse Tyson of his generation, mm. which is to say he was a great popularizer and all of his contemporaries thought he was a nut. <laughs> Such is but the he, curse for being a popularizer, right? Exactly. And, yes. and so, you know, but the next generation all came in because they read his books. And uh, Gamma had a great student named uh, Alpha. And the two of them had worked out a lot of this nucleosynthesis work. And as they were about to publish a paper by Alfer and Gamow, he had a bright idea and called up his buddy Hans Beta and said, you've got to be part of this paper. Why? So we can have the authors, Alfer, Beta, Gamow. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> did he do it? He did it. He did it. And that's <laughs> the paper. Awesome. That's great. That is fantastic. Um, so really, I mean, we could go back with the stars all the way to, uh, to, uh, Pickering at Harvard, right? That's when you know, classification and, and, begins. Well, no, classification actually begins with Angelo Secchi. Well, that Jesuit yeah, going priest. all the way back, going farther back to him, right? So yeah, and, how did and, it but, go from we, him to Harvard? How did that progress? Well, the first thing is to take spectra of lots of stars. You, you, you basically, every star you look at, you see the, the range of colors, and then you discover that there's a pattern, that there's not an infinite variety. It's not every star is different, but stars mm. come in different groups. Mm. And then you start sorting out, well, these all seem to be alike, but this is slightly different from that, so maybe we'll do two different groups. And Secchi was doing all of this by eye. He had a prism that he put in the front of his telescope so that every star became a rainbow. And he would note by eye what he was looking at and even do some color paintings. Wow. And he was able to do about 5,000 stars this way. Oh, my. This was in the 1860s. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's amazing. Well, about 20 years later, photography had gotten good enough that you could take photographs of these spectra. Not color photographs, but it doesn't matter as long as you know which end is the red end and which end is the blue end. Mm -hmm. You get a streak of light. And now, instead of 5,000 stars, you could do hundreds of thousands of stars. Mm. But in order to be able to do that, you needed a computer or a set of computers. Mm -hmm. In those days, computers were people, not right. machines. Right, right. So they hired a number of women, because women were very good at this painstaking work. That's what they thought then. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of well-educated women who had gone to Ivy League, Ivy League schools or sisters to Ivy League schools who wanted to continue doing work. And so Pickering and his crew uh, hired a number of these women. A number of them became expert astronomers. Annie Jump Cannon is the one that comes to mind immediately. Yes. Yeah. And they were able to classify tens of thousands of stars and refine the system so that rather than the five types that uh, Secchi had seen, they were able to subdivide it into 10 or 12 site, uh, types. And that's where we get, uh, oh, be a fine guy and kiss me. Oh, be right. Yeah, that's or, uh, or fearsome and brutal gorilla kill my roommate next Saturday. <laughs> Is that a Jesuit version? <laughs> uh, that's actually uh, a friend of mine. Uh, I wrote a textbook with Martha Schaefer, and she didn't like "Oh, be a fine guy" or "Oh, be a fine girl" with kissing. Mm -hmm. So uh, she thought uh, fearsome gorillas would be more fun. That that is a definitely a lot more entertaining. I would say absolutely. Uh, so all of this. It's, it's interesting. I was just doing some research for a project I'm working on, um, and I ran across a quote from 
Paul Davies, the physicist, I don't know if you've interacted oh, yeah. or know Dr. Davies. Um, he's a prolific writer and a popularizer of making, you know, he can make the stuff very difficult material understandable. But he said in, uh, and I can't remember where I saw this, he said in a book uh, that uh, basically the language of cosmology and astronomy today is entirely uh, monotheistic. It borrows from the language of Christian monotheism. You have singularity, laws, governance of the universe, you know, the, the narratives of, of creation and things. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting how the heavens, you know, we were talking about contemplating the grandeur of God and the poetry of, of Hopkins. But in, in, in one sense, too, that the, the, even if we want to call it a, a secular viewpoint of the universe is still charged with the grandeur of God, because we now talk about discovering the heavens with these, this word of mission, right? We, we yeah. missions to Pluto, missions to Jupiter, trying to uncover and know the mysteries of the heaven. And people like yourself dedicate their lives to understanding the cosmos, which I think leads into the idea that the universe is, is really declaring the glory of God. The, the, the fire folk are really saying a message to us and we are devoting ourselves, our lives, our resources, our time and our energy to, to listening to the silent speech, as I think Psalm 19 says, of the heavens. And so It's interesting. We've got, you know, other people at the observatory who work in cosmology, who go all the way back to, you know, the, the, the quantum era, the first 10 to the minus 64th second mm -hmm. uh, since the Big Bang. And the thing that inspires them to do this work, what could it possibly be? You're not going to get rich doing it. No. You're not going to get famous doing it. Uh, you're not going to get girls, didn't work for me. <laughs> of all the things that motivate people to do this esoteric work, uh -huh. whether you think you're an atheist or a theist or any other religion, what makes you want to go every day back to the lab or sit in front of the computer and do the tedious day-to-day -day work that maybe once every three years will lead to an insight? Yeah. And the answer is, the joy that comes from that insight. Yes. The joy when suddenly you see a pattern you hadn't seen before. Mm. When you suddenly feel right with the universe. Mm. And of course, that joy, number one, has to be truth. It we does. don't know that the truth is perfect, but we know that whatever we've gotten has gotten us a little bit closer to the truth. Mm. Well, think of what that means. It means it's it's something transcendent that we are yearning towards. Right. And that transcendence is the truth. Uh, I think I've just defined God. Now, it's not <laughs> the only thing God is, right. but certainly it is a manifestation of God. It's being surprised by joy, in, you know, in the words of C.S. Lewis. Absolutely. And so anyone who's a scientist, um, you know, science is a very rational, very logical activity. But all reason, all logic has to be based on axioms. You've got to start with assumptions about the universe. And these assumptions are fundamentally religious assumptions. Mm -hmm. And not every religion has the assumptions you need to do science. You've got to believe that the universe is not illusion. You've right. got to believe that there aren't nature gods pulling everything, but there actually are laws to be found. And you've got to believe that it's worthwhile that it's something that a grown human being can waste his or her time doing because at the end of the day, we're reaching for something that feeds our soul and that soul needs to be fed every bit as much as our body needs to be fed. 
Absolutely. I mean, what you just described is what I experienced last night. We've had a break in the weather here in Texas, and um, I was out last night in the lawn chair, just what I'd love to do in contemplating uh, the heavens from a Christian perspective and just the peace. I heard hooting owls, coyotes, crickets, birds, uh, some birds, uh, the wind in the trees, and then the, the clarity of the dark skies over my barn this last night. Uh, the light pollution is down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The smog is down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So the, there's actually a qualitative difference in the kind of dark skies that I was looking at last night and this morning. And it was absolutely, Brother Guy, it was the most, it always is, the most peaceful and serene moments to sit there and contemplate and say, there's Beetlejuice, there's Sirius, there's Procyon, there's Polaris, um, there's the Milky Way. And this morning was no less spectacular. The Milky Way was right outside and uh, along that with Cygnus. And then the planets this morning were visible, Saturn, Mars, yeah. and Jupiter. And uh, just the sheer contemplation and enjoyment <laughs> of the stillness and the beauty. Um, and I, my prayer was, Lord, I need peace in my soul as the kind of peace I am experiencing right now. It was beautiful. And, and beyond words, as the psalm says, there are no words, uh, but yet, they speak and their knowledge goes throughout the whole earth. It seems like, like with our book, that, that the psalmist, as, as Psalm 19 says, and as, as we're discussing here, that this idea that the language of the heavens is universal, wouldn't you say? And it is important that it is put into language. Um, <clears throat> I'm reminded of two things. First, a rather silly one. Uh, among the poetry I had to learn as a child was Emily uh, Dickinson, who I really never liked. Oh, okay. And one that I really hated was a poem. She goes, Arcturus is his other name. I'd rather call him Star. How dreadful of astronomers to go and interfere. Which oh, dear. Is a bad rhyme to begin with. Yes. But <clears throat> I want to know my friends by name. Yeah. I want to know that you and I both know we're talking about the same star when you say Betelgeuse and Sirius. Right. That this is a conversation that we're having. Right, And the other deeper thing is the line I almost misquoted earlier talking about the beginning of Genesis, which is the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. God is presented to us as Word, as language. And it is in communication that we can be in communication with God and each other. Yes. But what's deeper than that, of course what I learned in high school, in my high school Greek, the, the Greek is anarchetologos, in the beginning was the word, but the word for word is logos, yeah, which is also the word that we get the word logic from. Yes. In the beginning was logic. In the beginning was reason. The second person of the Trinity is the incarnation of reason and logic. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And the stars are kind of a, I often say the stars are themselves a kind of divine poetry. There's, and in their spectra, they're speaking to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a wonderful book. I don't know. I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. It's an older book uh, by Martha Evans Martin and Donald Howard Menzel uh, called The Friendly Stars, How to Locate and Identify Them. And she does a wonderful job of describing what you said just a few minutes ago about friends, the friendliness, the familiarity, um, and the, the commonality 
that the, these stars have for us, that when we're talking about them, we can talk about the, the same one. And, uh, and I find that's to be one of the most endearing aspects of, of astronomy is that you and I could look up at the sky at the same time and see Arcturus, or we can see Betelgeuse, and we can know exactly what we see and what we're talking about in that capacity. And then I love the poetry of, of course, I said we, we started off with uh, Hopkins earlier, talking about fire folk. And it brings to mind several scriptures where the Bible seems to talk about us as fire folk. I mean, in Matthew 5, I think, uh, and then in Genesis 15, where God takes Abraham outside and shows him the stars and says, your generations will, that come after you will be like the number of the stars in the sky. And so there's a lot of poetic allusion to people, Christians, followers of God, believers in Jesus, to be fire folk as well. It seems to be that we have something in common as messengers of light uh, to a world in darkness. This conversation, this aspect of conversation is what science is all about. Mm. So that you can quote a book by Donald Menzies, and I never met him, but I knew people who did. Mm. These were real pe people. Uh, I had... <clears throat> Uh, a friend, I mentioned my friend Martha Schaefer, who I'd written this book with, who came up with the brutal gorilla poem. Yes. <laughs> she and her husband were friends of mine back when we were all students together at MIT. Mm. And this was before I was a Jesuit. I was always, you know, trying to find somebody to date, and they suffered through many of my misfires <laughs> there. Well, I'm a Jesuit many years later. They're at uh, Yale, and they've invited me to go to the, the Nutcracker. It's Christmas well, time. I love the and Nutcracker. They said, and they said, oh, we've got a date for you. I'm a Jesuit now. I don't need a date. Right. Oh, she's a lovely lady. You'll really like her. And absolutely true. Her name was Dorit Hofleit. Mm -hmm. She was at the time 92 years old. Oh. She had been a student of Harlow Shapley, the fellow who worked out yes. you know, the, the shapes of galaxies, the shape of the universe. Right. She knew these people. You know, <clears throat> she was a friend of uh, Henry Norris Russell, of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Oh, wow. It's important to remember that astronomy is done by people, and there are people alive today who knew people, who knew people, who knew people, all the way back to Galileo. Absolutely. And that astronomy is this conversation. And like any conversation, we can't talk about everything. We right. talk about these things. So the saddest thing to me is someone who wants to get in on the conversation and doesn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And the way you get into any conversation, you, you show up at the dinner table and there's a, a bunch of people already there and you sort of, you shut up and listen for a while. Yeah. You find out what they're talking about. And only when you've got something that will fit into the conversation, then do you speak up. Or if you've got a question, okay, I don't understand what's this because sometimes those questions force everybody else to go, why are we saying that? Where did that come from? Yeah. The, the people who write me the nut letters that, oh, I've got a new way of explaining relativity, <laughs> they're not part of the conversation. They haven't been listening. Right. It's, they, it's they, an ego trip that they're on. And it's they, so sad because right. it's a great conversation. Yes. But you got to pay your dues. There's, a, there's an epistemic humility that is required at the entrance of the observatory. Uh, it's in quite required in religion as well. It is. It's absolutely, that's, it's, I was going to say, it's just absolutely a spillover. No, you don't leave your humility at the door when you leave church. Uh, a great book by one of our co-authors from the story of the cosmos. I don't know if you know, it just came out. Uh, Luke Barnes co-authored with his uh, uh, atheist agnostic friend, Geraint Lewis, who is also an astrophysicist. They wrote a book called the 
the, the, the revolutionaries, the cosmic revolutionaries handbook. And basically what you just said, they have been getting inundated with letters about people who want to change the fabric of the cosmos with their theories. And Luke and Geraint say, well, here's what you have to do first. It's a wonderful yeah. book. Uh, here's it. If you want to play a part in the conversation, here's what is absolutely essential. And uh, so I think that, yeah, in order to enter onto this, into the stage, into the parade, that just like, just like Christian humility, you need, there's a, there's a humility required in, in the universe. And that's one of the things I admired so much about uh, Kepler and, and what he did. I mean, he, he lived at, at a time during the Counter-Reformation, of course, as you know. Um, but uh, Chapman writes a wonderful piece about his committed, what Cap- Chapman calls non-judgmental Christianity. Uh, for while a clear Protestant, he says, he was never a bigot, seeing himself as a Catholic in the universe, in the sense of the ongoing historical Christianity. Uh, but he held positions with Lutherans and Catholics at a time of great controversy and seemed to keep his head about him and was able to to continue to do his science because of his admirable qualities of just humbly going about doing what you say, you know, applying humility and his love, his joy of doing his work was infectious. I mean... Yeah, you know, one of one of my happiest memories of my childhood. Uh, I grew up in Detroit, and like anyone in the auto industry, the summers were pretty much off times as they were running out the model year. Yeah, and everybody had a summer house up by a lake someplace, so we had a summer house up by a lake. Mm. And it was hanging out when all the grown-ups would be sitting around a fire, basically, you know, having a beer and uh, looking at the stars and talking about everything in the universe. And off in the shadows, away from them, would be us kids just listening. Oh, wow. And to be able to listen, to be able, I mean, that's so important in prayer. Yes. You don't go to God saying, here's how you ought to be doing things, God. Or worse yet, trying to manipulate God into doing things. This is, we're doing this recording during the Easter season. Mm. And... I heard a homily. This is one of the great things of being in a religious community. We still have, uh, you know, our religious services among mm-hmm. ourselves, even if we can't do it out in the public. I heard a homily talking about Judas. Mm. And his theory was Judas was a revolutionary. Judas wanted Jesus to do these things to start the revolution. And the theory is maybe Judas betrayed Jesus to force him to do those things to start the revolution. Mm-hmm. And that's the ultimate crime, is to not accept who Jesus was, but to try to manipulate him. Yeah, that is so, that's so, and that's, such that's, and that's the crime of a scientist, to rather, rather than letting the data speak to you, trying to manipulate the data to fit the theory you already had. Mm. Yeah, that, they all uh, fit together. Yeah, Michael, uh, as my thesis advisor at Houston Baptist, Michael's contribution to my writing and thought was was uh, immeasurable. I mean, he was one of my, he was, I would call him my chief mentor in writing him and uh, Holly Ordway as well. Uh, but Michael reminded me of something, uh, you know, that, that when you talk about science data from the Latin datum, as you know, means something given and it should be within our aim to take what is given and understand it as why it is given to us, why this gift, why this givenness. We are recipients, and there needs to be a humility in the receiving and rather than the dictating of what this data means and what it should be. I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful insight. 
Um, now, I know this has got to be something that you get asked a million times a day, if not, or when you go out and speak in public, everybody must bring up Galileo. So I want to give you the opportunity to give your your five minutes or however long you want to go on the subject <laughs> right? And, and briefly talk about that just a little bit for our audience who may not yeah. be, who may be, you know, and it, 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 it's something that Lewis said that Michael says uh, that I, that I, that I admire it. That he was quoting quotes Lewis a lot. He says, you know, Lewis says that there's a mythology that follows in the wake of science. And I think I could, could think of no greater modern mythos than the one that you routinely hear echoed about Galileo in the church. So, Brother Guy, if you'd set us straight, please, we would all appreciate that. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't fit into a soundbite. There's a, I actually, the, the, the question I was afraid you were going to ask is, would you baptize an extraterrestrial? No, I, I'll, is, I, I won't. You can bring that up if you want to, but I, I didn't. Well, uh, I'm going to bring it up because I wrote a book with a buddy of mine, uh, Paul Muller, would you yes. baptize an extraterrestrial? Yes. And all the other stupid questions people keep asking us. We took gotcha. Gotcha. out of the title. But one of them was Galileo, and it was the longest chapter. Yes. The true story is so complicated. It really is. Um, I'll say only three things. First of all, that Galileo was a devoutly religious man, a good Catholic. Even when he had the chance to flee, he didn't. He was dedicated to the truth, and yet he was also dedicated to not... um, upsetting or pulling apart the fabric of the church that he was in because he had seen that, you know, he was in the middle of the Reformation mm-hmm. and he'd seen that there was an awful lot of bad side effects when you try to do that. Right. Want to do that. The second thing was, you know, he was never convicted of heresy. He was never um, <clears throat> put in jail. He, the worst that he had was house arrest. And by that time he was in his seventies. He had, for 25 years, he'd been honored for the work he was doing, honored by the very people who turned on him. Mm. And that's the third point. Why did he get in trouble? What could he have done differently? And the answer is, we don't know. Yeah. There is all sorts of stuff written about him. And everybody, you've got to Amazon.com, you can find 400 books on Galileo, and they all have a different answer. And my yeah. answer is not going to be any better than anybody else's. Mm. But what's clear is that he did do everything right, except maybe being a little obnoxious. But hey, he's Italian. <laughs> We're all that way. It's part of the part of the territory. Right. Um, it could be that the affair went out of uh, you know went out of control because the Pope thought he was insulting him. But he was a friend of the Pope. They knew each other. Right. It could be that things got out of control because he made uh, his enemies look foolish. But they made him look foolish, too. This is, you know, par for the course. Right. The, One uh, thing that's always struck me is that the Galileo trial, which sort of arises out of nothing, he had gotten permission to write or to publish the book. He'd made the changes they asked him to make. Um, you know, he'd done everything they'd wanted him to, and suddenly he got into trouble anyway. It happened right at the height of the Thirty Years' War, mm-hmm. and it might have all been entangled in the incredibly politic, you know, co- complicated politics of the Thirty Years' War, which was, you know, a war that enveloped most of Europe one way or another, huge and horrible and 30 years long. Yeah. But whatever it was, it wasn't the church saying science is bad, we should be afraid of it. Um, The fact of the matter is Galileo's science, while groundbreaking and brilliant, also had its flaws. He didn't actually have the goods to prove his point. 
Mm. It flew in the face of the physics that everybody understood at the time. Of course, right. 40 years later, Galileo or Newton would give us a new physics. It makes more sense. Mm -hmm. um, you do the observations that Galileo was doing, and given what they thought they understood at the time, they thought they could prove scientifically that he was wrong. Well, of course, it meant that the observations were right, the interpretations were wrong. That happens all the time in science. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, Galileo was a good Catholic and a good Italian and a brilliant man and a Renaissance man, and he's someone that all of us as human beings can be proud of. And the treatment that he experienced is a treatment that all of us, regardless of what side we're on, can be embarrassed about because yeah. it's the kind of bad treatment that's very tempting to do to anyone who we disagree with for and whatever so, reasons, good or bad. It's so easy to do rather than to extend grace, humility, and congeniality and, and, and the benefit of the doubt to people. It's, it's really easy to do that. Uh, I, Chapman, in his book, uh, was setting up the, does a great job of setting up the cultural foray of the time. And one thing he points out that is not well known is the sort of the, the, the kind and type of acceptable rhetoric between people that were discussing important matters. I mean, if you go back to Luther as well, that there's a, a great deal of swearing and ridicule and mockery that <laughs> that went on between people in this in this time period, and that was just kind of par for the course. And then, of course, as you you'd mentioned earlier about the Vatican's separate city-state status, but uh, in Galileo's time in Italy, there were also distinct separate uh, provinces and city-states and little little areas of of political communities that were. Afoot, it wasn't one united political monarchy in Italy at the, at this time as well. So there was a lot of regional politics po politics going on as well. As you say, it's a very complicated. Uh, yeah. I mean, Galileo was a creature of the Medici family. Basically, they yeah. were paying his bills, and right. they were one of the big players, which meant they also had lots of enemies. Right. So it it, it, it it's far more. If, if you hear a simplistic version from a skeptic about it, you, you probably want to look into that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now we have just a little time here. Uh, briefly talk about um, what you love. You have a chapter in our book called uh, the, the Story of the Cosmos that came out last summer. You have a wonderful chapter uh, that describes what you do on a daily basis. Aside from being the chief Vatican astronomer with all the sundry daily details and duties, you also have a specialty, an area of specialty that you love to study. Why don't you talk about that for a little bit? Well, it's a marvelously complicated story. I <laughs> started out as a history major at Boston College when I was 50 years ago, when I was an undergraduate. But I loved science fiction. And uh, I'd been told to read the Narnia books, the ones that Michael you know, Lord wrote so beautifully about, yes. as a way of learning how to be a good writer. Oh. And in finding where I could find the Narnia books, I discovered that MIT had the world's biggest collection of science fiction. So I went to MIT to study science fiction. Wow. And I found a department called Earth and Planetary Science. Oh, planets, that's where, you know, people have adventures. Right. So I transferred in, discovered that it was the geology department. Oh, my God, rocks. Who's going to be interested in rocks? <laughs> but there was a charismatic professor named John Lewis who was fascinated in meteorites, rocks that fall from the sky. Well, this was really exciting. Turns out John Lewis actually was also very devout. He's a, he, <clears throat> and it was in the process at that time of becoming a Mormon. Hmm. And he's very active in the Mormon church. So, you know, we come in all varieties here. Well, um, 
I got working for him as a student, and he had a project. What if you had a body made half of ice and half of meteorites with the density of the moons of Jupiter? It was mm-hmm. 1972. We had no spacecraft there yet. We barely knew what they were made of. But would the rocks have enough radioactive elements to melt the ice, to form, you know, cores and oceans? And this was my thesis. I even came up with the idea that there could be an ice crust in Europa and an ocean underneath. And who knows, maybe even, you know, intelligent fish swimming in that ocean. Were you the first to suggest that? I was the first to put it in writing, only I was, you know, being a a smart aleck, I put it as, um, I'm going to stop short of postulating life in these oceans and let Uh someone else do that. Okay. Boy, what a a horrible person I was. (laughs) Well, anyway, in the process of doing that, in the process of writing this computer code in Fortran that had to be, you know, punched out in cards and handed into the IBM machine. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I realized there was a lot of fundamental data that I just didn't have that I couldn't find of just how dense are these rocks and how much heat do they give off and how much heat do they conduct and how much heat does it take to warm them up? And nobody actually made these measurements, which was a shame. Couldn't find them in any book in the library. Mm. Years go on. I do many other projects. I have many, many other in, you know adventures, including going into Africa and the Peace Corps and teaching at a small college in Pennsylvania And finally, the nagging call that I'd been running from for 20 years caught up with me, and I entered religious life, and I joined the Jesuits. Mm. And the Jesuits said, you've got a great degree in astronomy. We're sending you to the Vatican Observatory. They didn't ask. I didn't apply. They just sent me there. It's called obedience. Wow. So under obedience, I had to move to Rome and live in this palace and eat that terrible Italian food, and look <laughs> a, at these gorgeous gardens. Oh, gosh. What a Via you know. Dolorosa for you. Yeah, really, really. <laughs> and I discover that at the Vatican Observatory was a collection of more than a 1,000 meteorites, the very thing that had gotten me excited. Wow. But it was a private collector's collection, a little bit of everything. What can you do with them? Yeah. And then I remembered... If only somebody had measured their densities 30 years ago, I could have used them in my models. Well, here I've got the rocks. Let me measure the densities. Oh, how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Density is volume and and mass, mass divided by volume. Mass, you put it on a scale, that's easy. Right, right. But these are irregular rocks. How do you find the volume of an irregular rock? You don't plunk it into water, not if it's a meteorite. The water is going to react with the meteorite. Right. I needed something that would just cover the outside of the rock and act like a fluid, but not interact with it and not get into the cracks. Hmm. What kind of fluid would do that? Every day at the Vatican Observatory, we stop at 10 o'clock and have coffee, which means, of course, cappuccino. Hmm. And uh, there's, you know, Luigi making the cappuccinos and the steam and the spume and all of that. And I get my my cup of cappuccino and I'm pouring the sugar into it because it's good, bitter coffee. Mm -hmm. And as I see the sugar coming off my spoon, I go, powders. Well, I talk to a colleague who knows everything and everybody. He goes, I know exactly the kind of powder you want. They use over at Optical Sciences these tiny beads of glass to polish lenses. I can get a bucket of those. Mm. So for the next 10 years, we used pouring buckets of beads into a cup of known volume that has the meteorite in it to work out the volume of the meteorite. And then with the weight, you can work out the density. And this is the, and with all of these different, 
This is the first time that anyone had done this systematically in a way that wouldn't hurt the meteorites. That's fantastic. And we started this project. We did, you know, about a thousand meteorites, a little bit of every type. And the numbers turned out to be so interesting and, and have so many applications we didn't even think about. Wow. that eventually we got money from NASA to buy better equipment and even hire a graduate student. So the graduate student that we hired was another Jesuit, a young Jesuit brother named Bob Mackey. Got his degree going around the world. He has handled more meteorites and more big moon rocks from the Apollo collection than anyone else in the world. And he, his thesis was several thousand of these measurements. Wow. And then he came to the Vatican Observatory, and they made me the director. So I turned over my lab to Bob. Oh, my. Well, this has a very sad ending. Oh. Bob goes into the lab, starts making the measurements, and that rat, he does it better than me. <laughs> His numbers are cleaner and more accurate and more precise and more wide-ranging. And... He lets me be third author on his papers now, but he's taken this idea and just run with it in a wonderful way. Wow. And, and me, I've got to wind up, you know, managing the, the rest of the astronomers herding the cats. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's, that's awesome, Brother Guy. I mean, you, you have pioneered something in the field of astronomy. Well, let me tell you two cool things that come out of just knowing these densities that we yeah. hadn't even thought of. Absolutely. At the same time we're doing this, NASA's sending spacecraft to the asteroids. And when a spacecraft goes close enough to an asteroid, you can get its volume from really good pictures. And you can see how the spacecraft's path is deflected by the gravity, so you get its mass. Gotcha. We now know the density of the asteroid, and it's about half the density of the meteorites that come from that asteroid. Wow. And that means the asteroid is not just a big rock. It's a pile of rubble. You know, if you go to the beach with a bucket yeah. and you fill the bucket with sand and you have an identical bucket, how much water can you full pour into that bucket of sand before it comes out the top? Mm. The answer is about half a bucket's worth of water. Sand is 50% porous. These asteroids are 50% porous. Wow. How did they get that way? Oh, they were broken up and re-accreted. Oh, how did they get that way? Suddenly, it's, it's a thread that you pull that tells you the whole history of what went on in the asteroid belt four and a half billion years ago when all of these guys were being made. Wow. And the first step was knowing the density of the rock compared to the density of the asteroid. It starts with very small, humble beginnings, doesn't it? And you just keep pulling the thread. I'll give you another going. example. Okay. When you measure these densities, eventually you can work out how much of a typical rock is porous, how much of it is cracks. And about 10% of any meteorite is, is the volume is cracks because there are shocks that went through it and the shocks leave cracks behind. Mm -hmm. Well, we look at uh, these, these meteorites with an electron microscope. I have a friend who I met when we were in Antarctica collecting meteorites who works at the Natural History Museum in London, where they've got a beautiful electron microscope. And incidentally, I'm also the godfather to her daughter. So, you know, it's great friends. Wow. And looking at the thin sections, looking at these rocks in detail, you realize all of the pore space that we measured is in just cracks, and the rest of the rock is tightly, tightly packed. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Wait a minute. Where do meteorites come from? We all thought that it came from a cloud of gas and dust. 
well, if it came from a cloud of gas and dust and the meteorites are the dust, how come meteorites aren't just big dust bunnies? Where did they get turned from dust bunnies into solid rocks? Yeah, conglomerates, right? And so that's really the exciting thing in science is not so much the answer as to recognize here's a question we didn't realize before. um, Isaac Asimov has this marvelous line, the most exciting thing in a scientific lab to hear is not, aha, I've discovered it. But the most exciting thing is to hear, huh, that's funny. (laughs) That's great. Absolutely. Yes. I was just reading a devotional this morning about, uh, it was using the language basically of like, tear up the tear up your itinerary and give it to God. You yep. know, he, he's going to lead you in a way that, that you can neither plan for nor imagine. And it sounds exactly like what you've just been describing about your, your time from MIT into to the Vatican. You just didn't know that you were going to be hand selected for such a thing. That is phenomenal. No, no way at all. And, and every bit of it uh, turned out to have a reason that I could not have known at the time. Wow. This goes to another thing that, that occurs all the time in, in the life of science and religion is people say, oh, what happens if your religion says one thing and your science says another? Yes. Which has never happened to me, frankly. Hmm. But what has happened is my science has said one thing and then another part of science said the other thing that seems to contradict. Hmm. And when that happens, I get really excited because, hey, I'm going to get a paper out of this. Something is there. Huh, that's funny. Yeah, exactly. There it is. Hmm. And what you need is the humility to be able to say both of these things are true and I don't understand it yet. Right. Because if you think you know all your science perfectly, you're not a scientist. Well, that's what if Michael... you think you know God already, you're not a religious person. That's right. That was Michael's point in my interview with him about Chesterton. He said, if you think you know what reality is, yeah. you've made a very bad misstep. We have... Mm-hmm actualities we have we have propositional models of what we think the world is like but we don't actually have the the vantage point the transcendent vantage point of god outside the universe who knows how all things fit together but and it's does, so much fun getting there it is so much fun getting there it is so wonderful the journey is so fantastic and you know a lot of people look at where we are right now and thinking oh my gosh i'm stuck i, I can't do this i can't do that i can't do this nobody's anticipated any of this coming but now the world is going in directions it never thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of that, I have been paying attention to the astronomical side of things. Culturally speaking, we live in a, we have a golden opportunity before us to see the skies clearer than we ever have in, in hundreds of years, maybe even right. since the, since the, the advent of pollution uh, and, and automobiles and light pollution and whatnot. Um, Thank you, Brother Guy, for taking time out of your still remaining busy schedule to talk to us here at Good Heavens. It's been so wonderful to have you on board and to share with uh, our listeners the, the experiences that you've had at the, at the Vatican. And thanks for letting me tell some of my favorite stories. Oh, no, it's, I love, that's the one thing about your chapter that Paul and I both love. You are very avuncular in the way you describe what you do, and you're very accessible, and I think that is what astronomy needs. You... Uh, described in the opening of your book I, I forgot to mention you have the wonderful this wonderful book that you put together it's in it's been in five printings turn left at orion or left turn at orion mm-hmm. and you describe in the introduction your friend dan and going to africa and having dan by your side to to instruct and guide you in the way of observing things when you were in africa and so that, and dan's son is also a godson of mine so that's another that's that's awesome but that yeah. that i think absolutely points to what we've been talking about the conversation 
coming alongside, participating in the conversation with humility, enjoying the journey and the discovery and how God reveals his grandeur to us, little discoveries, little threads at a time, ways in which we never thought possible. Um, so thank you so much, sir. And uh, any would love to have you offer some concluding remarks about astronomy, science and religion. Where can people get started if they're interested? And, and is there any public way in which they can find out more about what you do at the Vatican or, or any good resources, whatever you'd like to share with us before we wrap up here? Well, the most pl important place you can go to keep this conversation going, I'd say, is a blog site that we have, an old-fashioned blog site, and it's called Sacred Space Astronomy. Uh, mm. If you Google that, you should find it. If you are the kind of person who can type it out, it's VO Foundation, as in Vatican Observatory Foundation, dot mm -hmm. org slash blog. And once a day, we've got a whole, somebody will be posting something. We've got a whole uh, string of great writers of many different religions, of many different places in the world, from an Irish woman who does astronomical art to a priest up in Wisconsin who reflects on the theological side of science to wow. an amateur, really advanced amateur, who gives wonderful descriptions of what you can see in the sky this week. That's and awesome. all sorts of other things in between, but it's part of this great conversation, and I hope it's a lot of fun. That would be fantastic. Now, is that refereed? Can anybody contribute, or is this something that you seek contribute contributions, or how does that work? Um, we have a, just a, a small number of people who do the writing, and we actually pay them for it. So that okay. these are, and then if you buy a membership, you can then join in the conversation and add comments. But That's anybody right. can read it for free. Okay. Fantastic. It's just really nice to know how that works. And uh, I have visited that website myself, and it is really, really fascinating. If you're interested in the conversation between science and faith, that is a place you've got a bookmark. Absolutely. Um, I want to wrap up with a scripture from 1 Timothy 3.16, and then we'll call it a day. Uh, Tim, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh who was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and that glory is God in Christ. And I think that is what I enjoy having in common with, with my fellow brothers and sisters who name the name of Christ and who love astronomy. Thank you, Brother Guy, so much for your time, sir. Thank you, and keep us in your prayers. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The Story of the Cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers, 
interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. Thank you for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. 